Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast. Go above and beyond five best practice actions to take your lockout tagout program beyond compliance. Sponsored by Brady. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I am moderating today's session. Thank you for joining us, and before we start the presentation, I have to go over some preliminary items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. Next, I want to let you know that at the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not have time to get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. And I'll give you more information about that after this presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To listen to this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Tom Smith and Ben Starkey from Brady. Tom is responsible for the company's safety and facility identification products. He has more than 20 years of experience in developing effective product solutions and tools for the industrial, commercial, and construction markets. Ben has performed a variety of roles at Brady and the experience includes helping clients with lockout tagout, confined spaces, and arc flash needs. Gentlemen, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thanks, Alan, uh, for the introduction. Um, so my name is Ben Starkey, and the other voice you'll be hearing today is Tom Smith. And as Alan mentioned, we're with Brady. So while today's webinar is primarily focused on best practices within five key areas of lockout, tagout, we are going to start with a review of what's being cited within OSHA's 1910-147 standard. Uh, from there, We'll talk through those five key areas covering not only what it takes to be compliant, but we'll introduce some best practices within those areas that you can use to take your program beyond compliance while also keeping it sustainability or, uh, sustainable. Uh, you'll notice some themes throughout. Whether you're building writ your written programs or writing procedures, implementing training or devices, it's never a one and done. The strategies we're going to discuss today can help your program stay sustainable and ever uh, improving. When we get to the end, as mentioned, we should have time for some questions, so feel free to type those questions into the chat box. The lockout tagout has been in place for 30 years, and for the past 20 years or so, it's remained in OSHA's top 10 most cited, usually hovering in about that five to six range. So OSHA is looking for these violations because it's really easy to spot non-compliance and it's difficult to maintain compliance. OSHA knows this. And these are the top five things they're going to be looking for. Injuries resulting from not having lockout tagout procedures are often severe. In addition to damaging your equipment, these incidents can also lead to amputations or fatalities most often. Um, in the event of either, 
you must notify OSHA immediately. And when they come in to investigate, that's what they're going to be looking for is these uh, five elements that you see on screen. As you look through these top five citations, you might be thinking, well, procedures, periodic inspections, notifying affected employees, these three can really be avoided by having up-to-date procedures. And you're not wrong. For many companies, this is where they choose to start when working towards improving their lockout program. However, when procedures fall out of date, periodic inspections are missed, or employees don't fully understand their role within lockout-tagout, it often has a lot more to do with the written program and the training components than, than you might think. Uh, so today, that's where we're going to start. And for the next few minutes, we'll talk about the written program and what you should be considering as you build, review, or look to review your written program. That's our first topic, implementing a compliant written program and steps you can take to effectively sustain it. Because having a well-established program is really the first step to being successful in all of those other areas. <clears throat> so your written pro energy control program is arguably the most important component when it comes to lockout tagout because when effective, it's going to serve as the roadmap for employees and administrators alike. The first sentence of 1910-147-C1 states, the employer shall establish a program consisting of energy control procedures, employee training, and periodic inspection. So just in that first sentence, it's clear to see that the written program is more than just a generic document covering why you do lockout tagout. Think back to the top five. Every aspect of your lockout tagout process and policies must be covered in your written program. So 147C1 goes on to say, these measures must be put in place to ensure that before any employee performs any servicing or maintenance on a machine or equipment, where the unexpected energizing startup or release of stored energy could occur and cause injury, that machine or equipment shall be isolated from the energy source and rendered inoperative. So as an employer, there's two sides to this coin. Covering your bases by putting those measures in place, and the second side is implementing them so that the employees are actually executing, it, ex executing to it. An effective written program is going to create a shared understanding. If I grab 15 people off the street, I would expect there to be some conflicting thoughts and opinions on how hazardous energy control can and should be implemented. The reason is there's no one true answer. I mean, there is in a sense, but companies are structured differently. They have different rules. They have different processes. So no two lockout tagout programs are going to be word for word the same, and they really shouldn't be. Tom's going to talk about sustainability a little bit later, but the written program will need to include those guidelines. So think periodic inspection here. The written program should be calling out who is responsible for doing the periodic inspections, when, when are the periodic inspections supposed to be done, you know, is this something that's done on shutdown days, or is it done whenever equipment maintenance is needed? Are you doing it immediately when equipment is upgraded or updated? This needs to be structured in the written program. Any periodic inspection forms you're going to require employees to fill out should also be included in the written program. Uh, so whenever there's a question around company policies or processes, an employee should be able to access and refer back to the written program to get their answer. So 
When companies fail with their lockout tagout program, it's often due to a number of reasons. Programs might be too generic, not site or business specific. Uh, they can fall out of date quickly, possibly due to a lack of rigor around management of change, whether that's change in personnel or changes to equipment. Uh, they also fail when there's a lack of follow-through by administration or a lack of acceptance or even awareness of the employees. So OSHA has provided some guidance as to the elements that are necessary to have a complete written program by way of its purpose, scope, and definitions. Other elements to include are applicability. What does this apply to in your facility operations and who does it apply to? It must address implementation, the roles, the responsibilities, who is authorized, who is affected, who is responsible for the periodic inspections and keeping an inventory of lockout devices. OSHA provides definitions in 1910-147B and a complete program incorporates and stays consistent with those definitions. Um, I won't get too deep into devices because Tom's going to spend a little more time talking about that in a bit, but your written program should call out where the lockout devices, um, locks, tags, um, isolation devices are going to be stored and how they should be accessed by the authorized employees. Your program should set the parameters and the frequency of training and this includes accounting for outside personnel and how contractors will be trained to the program if having an outside personnel um, or contractors is, is likely to occur. You want to keep a list of all your documents, such as the procedure templates, periodic inspection forms, um, JSAs, any other documentation you have within your program, and then updating the program anytime there is a new revision created. Lastly, your, your program should account for any other special processes um, that you have within your facilities. So special processes can include group lockout, shift or personnel changes, protocol for lock removal, testing and positioning, out-of-service equipment, minor servicing and machine guarding. Um, remember, your program doesn't need to include all of the special processes I just listed, um, only the ones that are actually going to apply at your facility. If group lockout is not something you do, do not include it in your program. However, if you, group lockout is something you're going to expect your employees to perform, then it needs to be called out and, and structured in your written program. So let's discuss some of those best practices that you can employ today, whether you are beginning to build or working to improve your existing written program. The first best practice would be performing a current state analysis, especially for companies that know that they need to make improvements to their written program but aren't really sure where to start. A current state analysis can be done to determine where the improvements are needed. Not only should this include a review of the existing written program, but you're also going to want to involve your employees, both authorized and affected. They won't be shy about telling you where their pain points are with the existing lockout tagout um, activities or program. Um, you want to include observation of the employees as well. We all know that some employees might know the right thing to say, but when it comes to actually doing it, it's a whole other story. You know, the old saying, do as I say, not as I do, right? 
wrong. So making time to observe employees will help you to pinpoint those shortcuts that are being taken, which should lead to a discussion on not just more rigor, but strategies to stay safe while also staying efficient. Uh, review your program at least annually. A great strategy to use is including a program review with your periodic inspections, or if periodic inspection is something that's really ongoing, um, it should be done leading up to annual training. That way your program is not just a one and done, but an evolution that takes place as your equipment and as your workforce evolves. Share and review your lockout program with contractors especially those that would be authorized to perform lockout tagout or those that may be affected by lockout tagout even if they aren't authorized. Um, and make your program readily available to employees and listen to the employee feedback. Remember, your program is going to be most affected and effective and most likely to be followed when it's understood and accepted by the employees. By making the written program available and involving your employees in it ongoing development, employees are not only more likely to follow the program, but they will show a greater sense of ownership over the program and be more invested in its development and sustainability over time. Lastly, train to your program. Your training should be aligned with your program and your key processes. So think back to that example I used with group lockout. If you aren't expecting employees to perform group lockout don't have it included in your program, and don't train them on performing group lockout. Um, when your training isn't consistent with your program, there will be more confusion than comfort when lockout tagout is necessary. So treat the implementation of your program with the same gravity and attention that you give to its creation. So, Next, we're going to talk about considerations for your lockout tagout procedures and some best practices, not only for what to include in the procedures, but best practices to make them easier to access and easier to follow by your employees. Before we get into the best practices, let's start by taking a look at what's required and the intended purpose of those procedures. Procedures need to be machine specific, and it's important to note that it's not type of equipment specific. So that means if you have five exhaust fans in a row, why would you need specific procedures for each fan? Well, they're all going to have different feeds of energy. While the types of energy sources may be the same or similar, this could be coming from different panels or possibly different breakers within a single panel. They may be located in different cabinets. So it's critical that the procedures are specific to the equipment so that the authorized people can easily identify the isolation points. Keep in mind, the more informative your procedures are, the more downtime you're ultimately going to save during the shutdown process of maintenance. Um, procedures need to be developed for equipment with more than one energy sources or energy forces. Um, so stored energy like gravity, compressed springs are examples of forces that you would need to account for and effectively isolate. Um, in a bit, we'll show you elements of a lockout procedure, both what's required and some best practices that you can include. Um, but remember, these procedures must be accepted, understood, and followed by the authorized employees. And authorized employees is a key word there. Affected employees, such as operators, 
aren't going to need to know the procedures or the processes for lockout tagout. All they need to know is the hazardous energy sources and limits of their working tasks and when they would need to call in maintenance personnel um, to come work on the equipment. So going a bit beyond the requirements, here's some best practices that you can consider with your lockout tagout procedures. Um, and we'll show you some examples of these over the following slides. Uh, the first is standardizing on templates. While OSHA has specifics on what's required of a lockout tagout procedure, there are no standards on templates to use. Uh, so a best practice to consider is standardizing on a template so if all of your procedures are in a different template or different levels of detail, your employees are going to lose a lot of time trying to interpret the layout um, every single time if it's unfamiliar to them. Um, keep in mind you want these to be easy to follow and easy to understand. And so think of your newest employees. If I'm a new hire to the maintenance team on day one, are these procedures self-explanatory enough to work through? Does the template make sense for not only my equipment, but my employees. Uh, procedures should be easy to access. Ensure that employees know where to find them. Um, there's many ways to go about this depending on your unique company needs, and we'll show you a few of them um, as we move along here. Uh, but when people choose not to follow the, the procedure for lockout tagout, many times the excuse is, uh, is going to be, well, I didn't know where to find them, and I had to get this thing fixed. Um, so making sure that there's, you're removing that excuse and employees know where to find them is going to further the accountability that employees will actively use the lockout tagout procedures. Uh, make the procedures visual by identifying the isolation points and use of pictures in the procedures. Um, so you can kind of see that on the example that we have on screen, how we've implemented pictures. Um, update your procedures when the equipment's updated. Your written program can provide direction for the equipment updates and periodic inspections, but making sure these don't fall behind is, uh, is critical to uh, you know, working with safe lockout tagout procedures. And account for language barriers. No one's going to know your personnel better than you do. Uh, you must understand what languages are being spoken and what your employees are going to be able to read. Um, Tom will talk a little bit more about how software can be used to, uh, to your advantage to mitigate, mitigate this critical issue, but it's something you need to consider as you're developing your procedure. Um, at the end of the day, remember, these procedures need to be easy to access and easy to follow. So when Brady authors procedures for our clients, it looks a lot like what you see on the screen front and back sided, the back page really reinforces your lockout process, the seven steps to shut down and your five steps to start back up, which is a requirement. Uh, the front page is equipment specific, and it'll specifically call out all of those energy sources, how to isolate and verify or try out as some people call it. Um, and you also need to be sure that you're including the proper sequencing. You want to make sure that you have a template that's optimized for your unique operational needs. And um, as I mentioned, I'll get into that more on the next slide. Um, as far as procedure requirements, machine-specific information such as the facility name, facility location, um, the equipment name must all be included on the procedure to make it machine-specific. Procedures must call out the energy sources and magnitudes 
have to have those action steps to isolate, including the, any devices that are needed and their responsibility, and those verification steps so your employees can be confident that the equipment is truly at a zero energy state. Um, and then there needs to be an enforcement statement consistent with your written program. What corrective action will be taken if I don't follow this? Is it suspension, termination? Um, you know, that's up to the company to decide. Uh, if you're missing any one of these requirements, you could be fined for, you know, having improper procedures, despite the fact that you actually do have procedures in place. Um, some best practices that you can then include to go above and beyond, best practices that we include when we write procedures, um, is big on the use of visuals, adding pictures, tags, and color coordination in order to aid your employees uh, will drive the time efficiency. Putting the number of lockout points on the procedure allows the employee to quickly identify how many locks are going to be needed before they start working on the equipment. You can also include the equipment ID number to give peace of mind that the procedure in hand is indeed for the equipment needing servicing. So earlier I mentioned template standardization as a best practice for your procedures. A primary benefit would be accounting for job transfers. If different business units or different departments within a company are using different formats or templates uh, for the procedures, it'll take an authorized employee extra time just to become familiar with the procedure before they even get to the point of maintenance or servicing. Uh, so by having a standardized format, no matter which employee and no matter which piece of equipment, um, there's going to be that consistency. And this also allows you to better train employees when the format and the flow of a procedure is always the same. While there are many benefits to standardizing on a format, you first must do a little bit of analysis to determine what's going to make the most sense. So on your screens, you see three different templates that Brady uses when creating procedures for our clients. Believe it or not, all three of these procedures are for the same piece of equipment, illustrating the fact that there's no one true way to format a procedure as long as you have all of those uh, required elements. Procedure on the far left is great for smaller and simpler equipment because you can fit up to six energy sources on a single page. You can capture all of them within a few images at the header. Our clients will choose this when they want, to proceed, when they want the procedures mounted at the control panel. That way you can fit more steps onto a single procedure and limit the amount of multi-page lockout tagout procedures, especially with ISO 9001 where document control numbers uh, must be included. There's value in fitting more information on a single page. The procedures like you see on the right and in the middle are better when there are a greater number of isolation points. Many of you may know some equipment types can have a very high number of isolation points, 20, 30, sometimes even more than that. Um, so when that's the case, having a picture in each step allows you to better identify all of those isolation points with a greater level of detail. Limiting any confusion while giving the authorized employee comfort knowing that they put the lock where it needs to go. The procedure in the middle is, is really a hybrid of the one on the right and the one on the left, where the one on the right was actually a procedure we created or a template we created for use with software applications on mobile devices, which um, I'll talk about a little more and Tom will talk about as well. 
Well, let's do a review as well as some last-minute best practices to consider when developing your lockout tagout procedures. Make the procedures easy to access. There are many ways to do this, but first you must understand what makes your environments unique. In a perfect world, you can have these printed, laminated, and hung on the control panel of every piece of equipment, but we don't live in a perfect world. Sometimes manufacturing environments are harsh. Sometimes maintenance is done in public areas. Think of schools and hospitals. Um, and in those cases, it's better to put them in a binder um, that's easily accessible. Procedure binders are also great for outdoor equipment, process lines, and clean rooms, so long as the authorized employees know where to find them. The best practice that we're starting to see more and more is companies that are incorporating their procedure into maintenance management systems that they use. That way, when employees get a work order or a PM task via their maintenance management system, they have the procedures readily available within the work order. Um, lastly, consider having them accessible by mobile devices, possibly by leveraging equipment barcoding or serialization. Um, some software applications allow you to get those lockout tagout checklists in real time with a timestamp through each step of the process, which is ultimately going to drive that employee accountability. Um, but remember, you know, with procedures, they, they should be easy to access and easy to follow. So the last topic I'm going to cover here before I turn it over to Tom is training. Uh, remember that employee training was the third most cited section of 1910-147. And we talked about some training tips during the written program section, and, and you'll see those reinforced here. Training your employees may sound simple, but for some, managing the frequency of the training and providing appropriate training can cause confusion. Training must in include specialized training by employee type, and it should specify when to lock out versus when to tag out. It should cover the types of hazardous energy, especially those that employees will encounter during their day-to-day -day operations. Think of your operators who are most often the affected employee. While understanding all of the different types of energy hazards is important, you really want to ensure that they're applying that to their workstations and the hazards they're facing most often. Employees should be trained to the company's specific processes around lock removal and tampering with locks. Authorized employees training must be even more in-depth. Authorized employee training should include um, following lockout tagout procedures, those processes, device application. Um, it should include demonstrations and documentation of those demonstrations. Uh, much like the written program, common failures that we see uh, with training occur when training is too generic, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all, whether for authorized people or affected people. Um, sometimes it's done just to check the box, or in some cases, there's just a complete failure to make time. Um, it can also fail when there is a lack of knowledge verification. So training is one thing, but again, ensuring that employees understand what they need to is, is a, a step beyond that. Um, so there are some best practices that you can consider around new employee training, including when and how often. Um, training should be included in new hire orientation, but you also want to account for retraining and keeping training frequency consistent with your written program. 
Uh, you can implement a, a mentor program by taking your most experienced employees and having them show your new hires the way of lockout tagout processes done at the facility, and they can show them how to look for ways of improvement and communicate that. Trainer competency is also important. Training works best in the classroom setting that allows for open discussion and dialogue when covering the training, followed with a quiz or some sort of assessment and a hands-on demonstration by the trainees. The trainer needs to be able to speak through the requirements while also correcting any demonstration errors. Uh, reinforce your training by making time to observe employees after the training. And training should be specific. Uh, like I said, not just tailored to the employee types, but tailored to the types of equipment and the types of tasks that they're likely to be required to do. Keep in mind that training can be developed in-house or you can partner with a company like Brady to provide your training. If you do bring in an outside company to build your training, you just want to be sure that they're going to do a review of your written program prior to the training. Remember that training should be a reflection of your written program, and if you're bringing in an outside company to do your training and they aren't reviewing your written program, it's more likely you're going to get um, a more generic, out-of-the-box training that's not suited to your key processes. So for lockout tagout training, you need to make sure that you have both authorized and affected employees trained before they begin work and begin facing hazards. And so incorporating lockout tagout training into new hire orientation is critical for both authorized and affected employees. Uh, for authorized employees, it's also required that the employees demonstrate their understanding by performing lockout tagout, and this must be observed and documented. Affected people shouldn't be demonstrating their understanding uh, because they're never going to be required to perform lockout tagout. Uh, a best practice with retraining is retraining those people on an annual basis. OSHA doesn't explicitly state that annual training is required. However, the periodic inspection requirement does state that authorized employees must perform a documented demonstration of lockout tagout on an annual basis. And so documenting this while training is a great way to stay ahead of that. When it comes to retraining, OSHA simply states that retraining is necessary whenever there is new equipment or a new job assignment. Um, so with ever-changing production floors, job transfers, building a routine around training and retraining will help you to not fall behind. Uh, one last best practice to consider for training is always be observant. If you witness employees that are not following your program or your procedures, this is a good sign that retraining is needed. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Tom Smith and he'll uh, take it from here. All right. Good job, Ben. Thanks. Welcome, everyone. Good to see the a good, healthy crowd size um, on the phone watching the webinar. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the newer products to look at for um, lockout tagout, some of the state-of-the-art products that you guys might not be aware of, and then I'll, I'll kind of finish by talking about sustainability and add some things around sustainability that um, you guys might want to think of as well. We know from uh, OSHA 1910-147 that the employer is responsible for providing the lockout devices, including locks, tags, chains, blocks, etc. Right? We also know that there are specific requirements around those devices. Um, uniqueness, for example, the padlocks that you use for lockout can't be used for um, your toolboxes or your sheds and gates and things like that, and they have to be durable, they should be standardized, right? It's all pretty much spelled out in the standard. 
not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but rather I want to focus on the ways some of today's new products can help in your overall lockout program. But before I dig into the kind of the specifics of the products and services, it's important to know the scale of what we're talking about, right? Products and services can range from a simple $15 padlock to an extended service contract costing maybe $100,000 or more. Most of us typically fall kind of somewhere in between. So depending on the size, we may have to budget for it as a company, right? And the simple way to budget and help justify a sizable expense is to, one, evaluate your safety needs um, for things like hardware, services, keeping an eye towards any emerging regulations or emphasis programs that OSHA may be having. Rank and prioritize your needs. Um, a lot of times we run into a conflict of, what's urgent versus what's important. And oftentimes the important things really have the bigger long-term impact in our safety programs. So make sure to weight those a little heavier if possible. Um, also, it's important that we align our, our needs with the overall goals and values of the companies that we work for, right? For example, is our company striving to be a best-in-class safety program, um, or are we really just simply trying to achieve consistent compliance overall? So that kind of that helps paint the picture as to um, which direction we need to head towards in terms of funding. Are you expanding or adding new employees? Are you expanding your facilities? Are you adding more training? Those can affect your budget for services, but they can also affect your budget for things like PPE and devices. From there, then it's really time to put the budget together, create um, and create an implementation schedule, and assign tasks. We worked with a major cruise line over the last two years to kind of overhaul their lockout program. Um, what they did is they piloted the new program with one of their ships in the first year. And then in the second year, they really budgeted to implement all of the remaining ships in that following year. They kind of used the first year for um, evaluating how well the program, the devices, the training was working. And then at the same time, they used it to kind of justify um, their budget for the following year. All right, let's jump into um, some of the devices. Let's look at what some of the state-of-the-art products are that are on the market now that can kind of help you go above and beyond compliance. I'll touch on three areas of products, hardware, software, and services. And Ben has already kind of covered a little bit on services, so I won't spend a whole lot of time there. But let's start with hardware. When it comes to hardware, probably my number one suggestion in going above and beyond compliance is really to customize. By that I mean customize the locks to fit your specific needs and make sure your devices are customized to the application. Um, we, along with other companies, are always creating new devices that try to lock out things that couldn't be locked out previously. So always look, check manufacturer websites for the latest devices, check with your um, local distributor and supplier of lockout products and make sure that they also have the latest and greatest devices. All right, let's talk a little bit about padlocks. Um, safety padlocks are typically lightweight. They can be nylon, plastic, or aluminum. Um, and in fact, the nylon plastic padlocks were the ones that were really created for the lockout regulation when that passed in 1990. They're unique. Um, they can be color-coded. And they're oftentimes lighter in weight than standard padlocks, making them easier to carry. So if I'm an electrician and I've got to carry a bunch of padlocks on me, Right, I'd rather carry um, the plastic lightweight padlocks in my toolbox or on my belt than having to carry a lot of heavier metallic padlocks. So something to keep in mind. Several manufacturers, including Brady, recently introduced 
lockout padlocks that offer more key codes. And in fact, they offer more than 100,000 key codes, in some cases more than 200,000 key codes. So I know what you're thinking, right? Who needs that many key codes? Well, um, we only have several, let's say you're a company that only has uh, several thousand employees with locks, nowhere near maybe 100,000 um, that you'd need all of these key codes for. Why would you need that? Well, let me explain. Before the introduction of electronic key fobs, right, and we're all familiar with the electronic key fobs that we use for our cars to open up our cars, um, it wasn't unheard of to know or hear of someone whose car accidentally was opened using someone else's key, right? Particularly if you have a car that looks a lot like yours and you walk up to the wrong car and you, and you put your key in the door. In the past, um, that was actually a little bit more common than most people think. The chance of duplicate keys were greater than what you would normally think. So let's unpack this a little further to understand what I mean. If you take the traditional padlock today, right, whether it's the plastic padlock or the aluminum padlock, um, they typically have about 15,000 unique key codes. And padlocks come in a variety of colors, sizes, and the hasp or the shackle lengths vary, right? Um, within our company, I think at Brady, we have about 166 different variations of padlocks. Um, so do manufacturers stock 15,000 different key codes for each lock color, size, shackle type, shackle length options? Then what do you think? Would, do you think we stock all of that as a, as a manufacturer? Sounds like a lot. It, it is a lot. In fact, if you really took that 166 vari variations and you spread that across 15,000 different key codes, you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 million stocking locations just for padlocks. So of course not, it would be incredibly inefficient, right? So manufacturers do their best to randomize it, but if you purchase a key different lock from the manufacturer's inventory, there is a slight chance that it could be a duplicate. Not something you want, obviously, when safety is on the line. So more key codes means less chance of duplication in general. <clears throat> Another reason for more key codes, um, OSHA does allow, and it's convenient, to order locks that are master keyed or locks with a, a supervisor key. It reduces the expense of having to cut off locks and replace them. The master key typically uses one of the pin chambers <clears throat> excuse me, in your padlock cylinder. Most locks have either a five or six pin cylinder in them or five or six pin chambers. Going from, let's say, no master keys to one master key, which uses one of those pin chambers, it really cuts down the number of available key codes by almost 80%, something from about 15,000 key codes down to about 3,250 for one master key. And if you have two or more master keys, you can wind up with a situation where you might have more employees than you have key codes, right? So the newer padlocks mitigate this offering by offering substantially more key codes. This provides more key security and gives you an extra margin of safety at virtually the same cost. In addition, um, if you look at the pin tumbler padlock that you're holding in your hand or that you've got in your toolbox, that design is really about 135 years old. We have many more energy sources, many more control points that can be locked out compared to back then. And even compared to when the lockout regulation was established in 1990, there weren't a lot of control points that would accept padlocks. Now there are way more. And if you think about our employee base, we go through way many more employees today than we have in the past. They move on to other companies more frequently than in the past. People no longer work for one company their entire career. 
layoffs are more common during recessions and downturns. Employees are less committed to one employer, especially when, you know, if you look at the past decade or so, the raises have only been around 3%, which causes younger, newer employees to really jump to different jobs for a significant pay raise. And employers tend to discharge employees more readily when conditions change or productivity lags. So all of that means that we've got a higher turnover today, typically, especially among the younger workforce than we've had in the past. And as Ben said, we certainly don't have two and a half million stocking locations just for padlocks. So what's the solution? Well, one that I talked about is obviously upgrade to new padlocks. Look for companies that offer padlocks with 100,000 or more key codes and then customize them. Um, let's say you want to outfit your facility with new lockout padlocks because over time you've accumulated a mix of different types of, of padlocks. <clears throat> Maybe it's a mix of plastic padlocks and, and metal or steel or aluminum padlocks. You realize that you have missing locks or missing keys, or you always find yourself purchasing more locks, or there's just a general lack of standardization of tracking where the, lock, the locks are kept just kind of a lack of general orderliness with your padlocks. One way to ensure all of your locks will have different key codes that is no chance of duplication is to request that they be charted. This means that the manufacturer uh, will maintain a record of all of the key numbers and locks shipped to your facility. So when you order more, you can really be assured that um, they will not be a duplicate of any key code entered previously. Those locks will not be taken from an existing manufacturer's inventory stock, but rather custom built to ensure that each lock key code and each lock cylinder is unique. Some companies may charge for this. At Brady, it's a, at Brady, it's a free service for us. Um, the images I'm showing on the screen are a screenshot of the database we maintain to help ensure your key integrity. So your company may have several locations within a city or geographic area. Our database actually tracks your company's locks down to that specific plant or address. This helps fulfill OSHA's original intent of one person, one lock, one key for safety. All right, another way um, to customize um, your locks is to engrave them. Go above and beyond, color code and engrave, engrave them. Red is the most popular safety lock color that you find. Um, ben, can you name, what's the second most popular, if you were to guess, what's the second most popular safety color? I guess yellow? Correct. What about the third? Now it starts getting harder. Mm. Orange? No, uh, it's really the primary colors. It's red number one, yellow is number two, followed by blue is number three, green is number four, but there's actually a total of nine colors to choose from. Often companies will use different colors for different trades. So for example, if I've got electricians, they may be red. The maintenance guys might be blue. The outside contractors might be yellow. The supervisory locks might be black. The operations locks might be in a different color. One of the reasons for color coding is to make it easy at a glance to determine whose lock is whose and where it belongs. And you can do that with essentially nine, up to nine different colors and padlocks. Many companies further identify their locks by actually engraving on them. Both locks and keys can be engraved. Typically, they'll identify the area those locks are kept in. Um, let's say it's in the maintenance tool crib or it's in a certain area of the plant. They'll engrave that location on the lock body. Also, some use um, engraving to engrave the key number on the lock body so that the keys and locks can be matched up quickly if they ever get separated. Both nylon locks and aluminum locks can be laser engraved. One of the newest options, however, 
is to color match the key with the lock. And the example I'm showing on the screen of the purple locks, it just makes it easier to find the right key quickly on a key ring full of similar keys. The color matched keys and locks, um, they're with that unique key shape. Um, when you when you see that, that kind of is a telltale sign that it's a different type of lock cylinder. Um, that's what provides over 100,000 different key codes. Both of these are standard on Brady's newest safety padlocks called SafeKey. The engraving is a little bit of an upcharge, however, but it does offer a significant um, savings in terms of being able to track your padlocks, being able to match up the keys correctly, and identify who specifically is responsible for that padlock. In some cases, I've seen customers will order padlocks engraved with the maintenance person's name on them. Sometimes I'll see them with just the, the location that those locks are supposed to be at, or possibly the equipment that it's supposed to lock out. So um, any number of, of examples, but going beyond and, and above just simple compliance is really being able to track those padlocks using engraving and color coding for better efficiency. All right, let's take a look at um, that cruise ship example that I mentioned just previously. If you've ever been on a cruise ship, um, it's really like a large hotel that's floating on a boat, right, because it's very similar to a hotel. We had the opportunity to work with a major cruise line for their lockout program, and they had these five distinct areas on their ship. The engine department, the electrical HVAC department, the decks, the hotel staff, which is really housekeeping, food and bev, casino, purser's office, et cetera, and then the entertainment technical department. The fleet was divided into groups of ships, and each group of ships had a safety manager responsible for each group. They were somewhat autonomous in that they could specify and define their own locks and devices and key systems. Um, but after some safety incidents, they kind of had a reevaluation of their overall safety program, including lockout. What corporate safety found was a mixture of different locks and devices, no standard system for keying, no recording of key numbers, and training that wasn't uniform, procedures that weren't uniform, and devices that mm, may not be best for the equipment that they had. And their purchasing department certainly wasn't consolidating all of this for optimal supply and, and pricing. So needless to say, they had lots of opportunities for consolidation and standardization improvements across the entire fleet. Um, this is what they did to better gain control over their locks. The padlocks were assembled into kits with tags and hasps. Each kit held approximately 10 locks, tags, and nylon tie. The locks in each kit were key to light for simplicity, um, and then the kits were placed in steel cabinets along with the appropriate safety lockout devices. The cabinets were then placed in five strategic areas on each ship, the electrical area, the engine room, uh, the entertainment area, the decks, and the hotel staff. All of the locks were color-coded for each area. So as you can see on the screen, um, red was the electrical, green was engine, blue was the entertainment staff. But they further engraved the locks with the ship name or the initials of the ship the location of where those locks were kept on the ship, in this case the EN stands for the engine area, the kit number that the locks were placed in, and the lock number. All of the locks were charted to ensure that there's no possible duplication of any key numbers should they need to reorder more locks going forward. So doing handling it in this manner kind of brings us or brings a couple of lean 5S concepts into play. Right, um, a place for everything and everything in its place. I believe the two principles in this case would be 
if I'm correct, Ben Saiten, the Japanese word for set and order or arrange items to promote an efficient workflow, and Siketsu, which is standardized, establish common standards for a consistently organized workplace. So apply some Lean 5S principles to your lockout program and devices, and you can save um, a lot of time and headaches within your organization. All right, let's talk about some devices. Not only do you want to customize your locks, but you also want to ensure that your lockout devices and safety covers are custom designed specifically for the energy control points. Manufacturers like Brady were always looking to lockout sources that couldn't be locked out previously. So as I mentioned before, always check with your distributor supplier for the latest lockout products. Here are some examples of newer devices that didn't exist even one to two years ago. The top left image is a fuse holder, right, where you take, you open the door, you pull the fuse out, um, and then you insert this fuse block. What it does is it prevents access to that fuse block and prevents the door from being closed. The two items in the middle are different terminal block lockouts. Many fuse and terminal blocks inside, there are different types of fuse and terminal blocks inside electrical cabinets, and they can have different designs. These two that you're looking at for the terminal blocks happen to be designed for, I think, General Electric and NEC fuse blocks. And then the image on the right is a pendant control cover, right? You see the pendant controls, um, controlling things like hoists, gantries, cranes, anything to move heavy material or work in process um, items in a plant. The cover actually blocks access to the control buttons operating the hoists and cranes. It's typically made of a cloth-like like material of nylon, um, but it expands to fit both small and large pendants and has hard plastic sides so you can't um, get your fingers into the cloth and push, push the buttons inadvertently. Here's another um, set of devices. Um, the image on the left is from material handling equipment such as forklifts, pallet jacks, stackers, scissors, powered carts. The next image is a battery lockout device for commercial vehicles. When you're you know, working on a commercial truck like a semi, whether it's a Mack, Peterbilt, Kenworth, those engines and systems also have to be locked out. The unique thing about this is it's got a post in the middle of the device to prevent the cable from pulling out. Um, the third image is really a confined space safety cover that goes over a, a confined space opening. These come in a variety of sizes, both solid and ventilated. They're designed to block access to confined spaces like pipes, tanks, hoppers, vessels, tunnels, manholes, wells, vaults, and more. And the good thing is these types of covers also keep out small animals and rodents from entering areas, especially if they're outdoor, outdoor uh, um, confined spaces. Lastly, the device on the right is really used for pipelines and piping systems. Let's say you have to repair a pipe downstream and you shut off the valve and locked it out upstream, but know that there might be some residual gases or liquids that may still exist in that pipe. This is where a pipe blind is used. It's like a pancake that fits in between the flange to block the flow of liquids, chemicals, or gases. Um, and the red pipeline lockout really blocks access to the flange bolts and it prevents the blind or pancake from being removed with common tools like a, a crescent wrench. All right, I know Ben talked a little bit about services, so I'm not going to add a whole lot, but here's just a few things to consider if you're looking to engage an outside service provider for perhaps writing your lockout procedures or training. One, know how many pieces of equipment that need procedures because your cost is oftentimes dependent on how many pieces of equipment you have. Ask your service provider how much experience they have in the industry with similar processes in equipment. More experienced field engineers know what to do, they know what to look for, they know the blind spots, they can usually operate a little bit faster, which means they can do more in less time, which will cost you less. 
Look for companies that have a breadth of lockout tagout solutions to offer. They're oftentimes more well-rounded. They can bring other creative approaches to help close whatever gaps you may have. And then look for companies whose goal is not just a one-and-done, a one-time presentation or training, and then go on to the next opportunity, but rather those whose goal is to really sustain the solutions long-term that you put in place. Let's look at software for a second. When it comes to creating and updating procedures, there are numerous companies offering software and templates. As Ben said, it's a best practice to use a consistent template for all your procedures. It helps speed rec recognition, saves time um, when maintenance personnel know where to look for critical pieces of information. Look for software that's easy to use, easy to upload pictures, provides different formats depending on whether your equipment requires a lot or a few procedures, easy to store and print with a lot of drop-down menus to keep things simple and fast. Now, beyond just creating and storing procedures, what takes it to that next level, right, to go above and beyond? Well, it's software that speeds the task and is where you need it, when you need it, like in the palm of your hand, when standing in front of a machine or needing maintenance. Look for smart software that is mobile-enabled. Simply scan a barcode on your machine. It'll bring up a lockout procedure on your phone or tablet, have it walk you through the shutdown and verification steps one by one, keep track of who and when lockout was started and completed. It should allow you to filter by area or piece of equipment for easy navigation and give you access to the most current procedures anytime. Um, that's really taking it to the next level. Um, one of the things that the procedures should do, something like the smart lockout, is give you a timestamp report. The report should give you information about the equipment, who performed the lockout, record a timestamp of when each procedure was locked out, allows for a maintenance person to add notes about the machine or procedure. Lastly, it should be compatible, obviously, with iOS or Android operating systems and be easy and simple to use. All right, lastly, let me talk a little bit about how we keep our program sustainable. The mobile lockout procedure software I reference is really part of another cloud-based software program that helps you sustain your lockout program. One of the biggest issues to tackle, how do we sustain a lockout program over time amidst all of the employee changes, retirement, equipment that gets frequently moved for Kaizans or continuous improvement efforts? The answer is leverage technology. We need alarms to wake us up, traffic signals to maintain our orderly, safe traffic flow on the way to work, GPSs to get us to know where we're going in the shortest time possible. The same holds true for our lockout program. The particular cloud-based software program that I'm referencing here houses all of your procedures in one central location, provides varying levels of administrative access to update and approve procedures. It permits procedures to be accessed by your mobile device. It stores reports, allows you to create new procedures, route them for approval, and supports, as Ben mentioned, 13 different languages for multilingual capability within your plant. It can keep track of all your equipment with an on-site, within a site or among multiple sites. And then within the site, you can also divide up your equipment into multiple areas, so it makes searching um, for that piece of equipment fast and easy. Keep it sustainable with software. Here's a screenshot of the management dashboard for that piece of software. At a glance, it shows the number of new procedures published in the last 12 months, procedures that are due for audit in the next 12 by month, by number of procedures that are overdue, et cetera. It's kind of a quick dashboard. At a glance, it tells you where your facility is in terms of um, the periodic inspections. Power so powerful software that houses all of your critical lockout information with color-coded reminders and provides all of the key information at a glance. While this software is useful for storing all of your information, it's most really useful for helping sustain your overall lockout program. 
All right, just recapping on what we quickly went through. It looks like we're at about 12.56 Central Time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just recap this in about a 30 seconds, and then we'll see if there's any additional questions. Creating a world-class program that goes above and beyond really encompasses these five areas. As a world-class program, um, it should have your employees' fingerprints and buy-in all over it. By involving your employees in the creation of the program, you prevent a one-size-fits-all mentality and help ensure your practices are accepted, understood, and followed. Ensuring your standardized, photo-rich, templated procedures are easily accessible, i.e. on the machine or in your hand or on the mobile device, means better visibility and adherence overall. Providing annual refresher training that Ben talked about is a best pra practice, not a requirement. It can be easily be combined with periodic inspections to inform, reinforce, and keep lockout machine guarding and safety top of mind. Look for newer state-of-the-art products to lock things out. Lastly, sustain your program by leveraging software and technology to give you simple dashboard views of your current status and ways to simply modify and keep your procedures updated. And we know that by doing all of those things, will maintain a safer workplace, it'll result in reduced lost time, increased uptime or production time, better efficiency, and overall lower our costs for insurance as well. So with that, um, I'll turn it back now to Alan to see if we've got any quick questions we can handle. Alan? All right, thank you gentlemen for your expertise and insightful presentation. Uh, before we start the Q&A, I wanna remind everyone the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, that survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, now we're going to get to some questions. Uh, what suggestions do you have to improve training for a company with uh, heavy turnover? take that one. Um, so yeah, obviously training is critical. We spent a lot of time talking about that today, but especially when companies have a high turnover rate, it can be a bear to manage. So bringing in third-party um, trainers usually needs to be scheduled and can be difficult to get someone in the next day, especially someone who's familiar with your written program. Um, so in those instances, it's really better to almost be able to do that training internally and have it done in-house so that it can be covered in new hire orientation. Um, in the past, clients that we've worked with uh, that face these challenges of a heavy turnover have opted to go with something like a train-the-trainer type of service where we would come in and help them develop a best-class training program along with all of the assessments and certificates. That way, someone internally can be assigned as the trainer um, and become qualified to lead the future trainings moving forward. If this is something that's done on a, you know, a, every every couple weeks or on a monthly basis, um, you know, they don't need to have Brady or anybody else come in to do that. They can sustain that part of it on their own. Great question. Our next, yeah, our next question. If I buy new locks, do I have to completely get rid of my current system? I'll take that. Thanks, Alan. Um, it really depends on whether your locks are key to like or master keyed. Most companies have a lot of their safety padlocks just keyed different. In those situations, you can simply add new locks to your system as needed. If your system is key to like or master keyed, um, the new and different locks that are offering more than 100,000 key codes generally will not key into those existing systems. In those cases, what I'd probably do is pilot the new locks uh, within a section of your facility or a department. 
um, and see how those new locks improve the tracking and overall productivity of, of the personnel, particularly your maintenance personnel. And then I probably look to kind of expand from there as you as you convert your locks over to the newer devices. So I would probably start with a smaller section within the within your facility, prove it out, make sure it, it, it saves you time, saves you effort, better tracking, and then I would use that information to help expand um, your universe there and justify any additional cost or time involved there. Our last question, um, can e-stops be used as a lockout point? I'll take that. Um, <clears throat> so contrary to what may be popular belief, the answer to that is actually no. So um, e-stops do not isolate power to the machine, but simply just controls the power. Um, so lockout tagout requires that isolation point to be used. Um, but those safety mechanisms, like an e-stop or a, a machine guard, um, that an operator may use to do process tasks would not be considered full isolation. So the answer to that would be no. All right, thank you everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but as a reminder, all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Tom Smith, Ben Starkey, everyone at Brady, and of course, all of our listeners. Please have a safe day.